excited to be recording in Barcelona in Spain. It sucks to be us. Our speaker this evening is Sylvie, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce your last name. Hober. Who is from the Netherlands. Yes. Hey Sylvie, how are you? I, I'm very good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks again for coming out to meet us. While I was looking you up, I had a look at your CV and I realised that you've bounced from one country to another to another. Can you explain how that happened? Yeah, so I started, so I, I'm from the Netherlands and I did my master's in the Netherlands and then I went to, well, several places. So I went to um, Scotland in Edinburgh to do one master thesis for six months and then afterwards I went to do a master thesis in Kenya. Oh, wow. Um, just like a practical stage uh-huh. uh, for six months. And then I really liked my time in Edinburgh, so I applied for a PhD in Edinburgh with Andrew Reid. And then about midway my PhD, I guess one year, Andrew said, okay, we're going to move. And so he moved to Penn State. Uh-huh. And actually, initially, he was thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna to see, I, I, I want to move from Edinburgh, and I have several places in mind. So mm-hmm. one of them was um, New Zealand. Oh, wow. And he was talking about Switzerland and some other places in the US and in the end we ended up in central Pennsylvania. Wow. Which initially was a bit of a disappointment but (laughs) it turned out to be quite good. And then so I stayed there for about five years and then on to Barcelona so that's that's where I am now. Yes. And how do you enjoy Barcelona? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Barcelona is one of the best places I think you can live. It's... I mean, climate's nice, food's nice, people are nice, there's the sea, Yep. there's the mountains close by, it's closer to family, so, mm-hmm. yep. yeah. It ticks all the right boxes. It does, yeah, 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 <laughs> it's, no, it's perfect, yeah. So, um, having bounced around, can you tell us a little bit about what your research actually involves? So, I'm an evolutionary biologist by, by training and I'm really interested in the evolution of drug resistance. So, I started out doing this by the evolution of uh, drug resistance in malaria. Mm-hmm. So, this was my one of my master thesis uh, topics uh, that I did in Edinburgh. And then uh, I continued doing that during my PhD and my first postdoc and then now in, in Barcelona I'm talking more studying more different uh, aspects of drug resistance evolution. So during my PhD and postdoc, I used malaria as a model system, not per se to just study malaria, but also to study different uh, different um, systems of evolutionary biology of resistance. Mm-hmm. Because the basic evolutionary principles are very similar, whether you talk about malaria or cancer or antibiotic resistance, yep. it's all the same. So we, in the end, we started using the malaria... Um, model system. So this was a mouse uh, mouse malaria model, mm-hmm. more as a model system than uh, to study malaria per se. Yep. So now I'm 
still in malaria, and this time really with field samples. So it's not a model system, but really, what's the what's the situation of malaria drug resistance in sub-Saharan Africa? And at the same time, <laughs> I'm also looking at the mosquitoes, so uh, insecticide resistance in the mosquitoes. Yeah. So also, so all this work is happening in Mozambique. Wow, that's yeah. very exciting. So, do, does that involve field trips there, or it, it does? So, I'm planning a field trip in two weeks. I'm going okay. for three months to Mozambique, which will be really nice. Um, but most of the work, what I've been what I've been working on so far, is other peop- other field trials that have already happened, or clinical trials that have already taken place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, those samples have been collected, and then they're shipped to Barcelona, and then I I, I do lab work. So I think the, the subject of drug resistance is incredibly topical right now with a lot of people very worried that, um, for example, antibiotics are not very useful against bacteria. Can you explain um, how the, the drug resistance actually comes about for people who don't understand? Right. So in principle, it's very simple. So an organism, I mean, this is evolutionary biology, I guess. Mm-hmm. An organism wants to wants to survive, and yep. it's basically the ones that survive are the ones that produce babies, and mm-hmm. those are the ones that continue on making babies, and those are the ones that continue on making babies, yep. right? So if you throw drugs at something, the organism that isn't killed is the one that's going to go on and make babies. Mm-hmm. So you'll have more of those that are being drug resistant. So that's a very basic, you know, I guess for a five-year-old explanation of, of how yeah. evolution and biology of drug resistance works, right? Yeah. Um, so it's as simple as that, but the basic principles, and that's the same for cancer, that's the same for malaria, same mm-hmm. for antibiotic resistance. But then the principles are very different. So, for instance, in antibiotic resistance, you have these um, basically genes on plasmids that can be that can be transferred to different uh, bacteria. So Mm -hmm. if one bacteria has a a gene for being resistant, it can actually give it to another bacteria and make that one resistant, Mm -hmm. which is a very different principle. Mm -hmm. Um, But then afterwards, it's the same selection. So then you throw drugs at it, and the ones that have gotten this gene are the ones that are surviving and that are continue making babies. Yep. so I'm really interested in what the differences are then. Well, what are the commonalities and what are the differences? So, mm-hmm. um, so for instance, in this workshop that where I was at uh, this week, it was we have uh, people from agriculture where you have herbicide resistance and insecticide resistance, and they have exactly the same problems as we have in public health. Yeah. Um, what I find interesting is that the, the aim of the game is a little bit different. If you talk about public health, mm-hmm. if you give drugs, your aim is to eradicate every single pathogenic organism yep. Yep. or cell um, whereas in agriculture they don't necessarily care about killing everything mm-hmm. that's in there they just want to have their overall crop to be uh, giving the optimal yields yeah <clears throat> yeah so your strategies have to be a little bit different mm-hmm. in um, in agriculture you can say okay we sacrifice a few yeah whereas in people you can't say okay no. we're gonna sacrifice a few so yeah. you know there's a very interesting differences yeah. So one thing I found very interesting about the, the stuff that you look at, most people, when they're looking for um, new treatments, they're actually looking for new drugs. And so you, you're effectively perpetuating the same problem. You, yep. You're going to experience exactly the same thing. Right, yeah. So you're coming at from the other angle. You're trying to control the evolution of these things to stop them from 
right. cunning resistant, right? Right, right. So yeah, and there's and I think both of them are equally important. So mm-hmm. there's so on one hand we need to keep um, developing these new drugs because yep. in the end resistance is always going to happen. There's no way you can stop resistance from, mm-hmm. from going to happen. So if it happens you need to make sure that you have other drugs. Um, waiting in line to be used when another one fails. Yeah. But at the same time, this is a very expensive process. Mm-hmm. If you just do what we're doing now, as we know what we're doing is we're going to select for resistance. Yep. And that time period is basically how how expensive this process is. So if the time period from putting a drug out on the market and actually having resistance is very short, then this drug threat mill has to produce and produce and produce. Plus. So there is also mileage in trying to make that gap, that time period or the, the lifespan of a drug uh, much longer. So yeah, so that's the aim of the game. And then at the same time, there are some situations, so for instance, insecticide resistance, in the case of malaria, there's just no other drugs are going to be, or there are not going to be any new drugs available for the next five to ten years. So then we need to be really smart about how are we going to use the drugs, the ones that we have, to actually make sure that the time until we see resistance is as long as possible. Yeah. So, Given that evolution is this natural process, and as you say, it can overcome so many things, how do you control the evolution of something? Right, well that's the golden question, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> So we just spent three days <laughs> discussing, discussing this. this. Yep. So how do you how do you slow down evolution? That's mm-hmm. that's the golden question, right? Yep. There's lots of different ways to look at it, and actually there's a lot of controversy in how best uh, to slow it down. Um, so what I've been working on during my PhD mostly is looking at the drug dose. So this is one of the angles that we could look at, and what mm-hmm. we know is that um, when you give a drug. The, the aim of the game is to eradicate every single parasite, or in the case of malaria, every single parasite, but yep. in all public health it's the same. So you try and hit fast and hit hard. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the aim. So what I've been looking in my during my PhD is that, is that actually from an evolutionary perspective, does that make sense to use that approach? Mm-hmm. Because basically what you do is you've got a lot of parasites, and then you're going to give lots and lots of drugs. So the idea is, of course, if they're all susceptible, then they're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's fine, that's what you want. But if a few of them are resistant, then what you're going to end up with is you're going to kill all the competitors and you're going to be left with this one resistant one. Yep. So I always like to compare it to this needle in a haystack. How mm-hmm. best to find a needle in a haystack? It's by burning the haystack uh-huh. and you've got your needle, yep. right? So this is what you're doing with very aggressive treatments. Yeah. We see this in malaria, so I've done experiments um, in a mouse model in malaria, and we can show this very nicely. If you've got a burning infection with lots and lots of parasites, and then you add a few resistant ones in there, Mm -hmm. and um, you don't treat it, you never see those resistant parasites again. They're just gone. And this is is suppression. So it's just competition for for resources Mm -hmm. and competition through the immune system. Now what you're going to do is you're going to put lots and lots of drugs in it. So this is my mouse. My mouse is the patient now. So you put lots and lots of drugs in it. Or the susceptible parasites go down, the mouse gets better, and then you get a relapse from resistant parasites growing up. And this mouse gets sick twice. Yeah. So now you have a patient that first is sick, you're going to treat it, and then it's going to get a relapse of a resistant parasite that you can't treat because your drugs don't work anymore. Yeah. So then we've been thinking, well, if aggressive treatment, so this high dose, which is what we call aggressive treatment, if that doesn't make sense, well, what happens if you give less drugs? So we did this. So we, we gave these mice a lower 
two different doses, either a little bit lower or a lot lower. Yep. And uh, what you see is the lower the dose you give, the less of an advantage you give to the resistant parasites. Uh-huh. So the, par- the infections still get cleared, yeah. but at the same while they're being cleared, they also keep the resistant parasites under control. Okay. So in the end, it makes sense that if you, if you give less drugs, you're going to give less of an advantage to resistance. Because yeah. in the end, if you don't treat at all, if you don't give any drugs at all, then of course there's not going to be any evolution of resistance either. Yeah. But what everybody then says is... Um, what happens to health because mm-hmm. that's why we use drugs yep. we don't use drugs to have a resistance management strategy yep. we use drugs to actually cure people at least in these mice and I have to be very clear that these are mice and they're not people so there's lots of constraints to it but in these mice it actually didn't matter whether they got a high dose or a lower dose mm-hmm. they were equally uh, they were equally being cleared from their from their uh, clinical symptoms yep and really what happened there is they got really sick and then we give them drugs and it was actually that little bit of drugs that they needed to sort of take the edge of the disease. Okay. And what's funny in this group of mice, actually the, the ones that were worst off were the ones that were given that very aggressive treatments because they got sick twice. They first got sick from their from their susceptible parasites and yeah. then they got a relapse of the resistance ones and then they got sick again. In that situation, so this is starting with... Um, an infection that where some resistant parasites were there. Yeah. The thing you don't want to get as a patient is getting very aggressive treatment. But just a little bit less and then let your immune system take care of the of the mixture of resistant and sensitive parasites. Okay. Does this then clear the disease altogether? Because one of the other arguments is going to be from people who are convinced that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is out to get us and this is a ploy by them to make money. So if you give people less, they have to keep the treatment going for a long period of time. So does this fix the disease? And it, it doesn't. So in this case, I mean, this, this mouse model is a very uh, artificial system. And actually, they have a very good community. So in the end, they clear the disease. Whereas okay. in a human infection, this wouldn't be the case. Yeah. And basically, you have to see it as a proof of principle. What we're currently doing uh, doesn't necessarily make sense. It's being seen as we need to give aggressive treatment because it would produce the evolution of resistance. Yep. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. But it, it's true that maybe in, if, we, if we talk specifically about malaria, that um, maybe it wouldn't make sense to give less treatment because people wouldn't clear their infection, which is not what the aim of the game is in the yep. end. Or they would get sick again because you get a relapse of infection. Yep. So... Another, and this is just crazy ideas. This is things that we've been thinking about. Like, how can we, how can we approach this? And one, a bit of a silly idea, what we came up with is, well, what would you do if someone comes to the hospital and says, I'm sick, you know, and you check if they have malaria. You give them a bunch of pills and you say, you take one now and take one again until you feel better again. Mm-hmm. So rather than, normally when you go to the doctor, you get antibiotics, for instance, they say, okay, 10 days and you have to sit you have to finish this course mm-hmm. because otherwise you're going to get resistance. Yep. So we're sort of going against this dogma and saying, well, why not just take one until you feel better? So this isn't something that everybody should go out and do now yep. because this needs to be tested, but it's just an idea to, to sort of go against what, what, the, what the dogma is. Yep. And maybe, maybe it isn't true. Yeah. But I think uh, one of the major problems with antibiotics is that people are taking them inappropriately, so when they don't have bacterial infections. And I think this is really affecting bacterial resistance, at least. And it's funny that we don't actually know how how important this inappropriate treatment is. So 
of course, if you take antibiotics and, and you've got a viral infection, then everybody knows then, well, everybody should know by this time, mm-hmm. it's t- 2016, yeah. that um, you shouldn't take antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you don't have a, a bacterial infection, that's not a problem either. There is no bacteria seeing, um, no pathogenic bacteria yeah. seeing the antibiotic. Mm-hmm. The problem in the case of, of uh, bacteria is more what I was talking about before, these genetic elements that can actually move. So what could happen is you take your antibiotics and you select for resistance in your gut bacteria, for yeah. instance. And then these have these resistance genes and they can give them to a pathogenic bacteria that comes in later. Mm-hmm. So this is an issue. In the case of malaria, people have been talking about this. So if uh, someone who uh, comes into the clinic with a fever, and very often is sub-Saharan Africa, that's being considered as it could be malaria. Mm-hmm. And especially in the past, many times, immediately anti-malarial treatment was given. And this was seen as a bad thing. But thinking about it, if you don't have any parasites, you're not going to select for resistance either. So that's maybe true. it's not such a bad thing mm-hmm. after all. Of course, the best thing is not to treat inappropriately yep. by default. But we actually don't really know what the number is. Like, how much does that contribute to the to the resistance problem mm-hmm. that we have now? Okay. Um, now, I don't know if you know much about this aspect, but you said you were looking into the mosquitoes as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course... Um, mosquitoes are the vectors or they're the the things that carry the parasite that actually make people sick so I was wondering about this everybody hates mosquitoes I don't know anybody who likes them well my husband does does he? yeah okay (laughs) I'm going to assume that this is for a very practical reason well he's an entomologist and he just loves mosquitoes and he thinks they're pretty (laughs) oh okay Uh, each to their own I guess But yes, the the majority of people, I would say, would be happy to see them wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. I was wondering how much, actually, maybe your husband should have answered this, how much of an effect would that have on the ecology, do you think? Because there there must be plenty of things that eat mosquitoes. Would this then have a knock-on effect on other animals within that ecosystem? Yeah, it's predicted it would. And actually, we shouldn't be trying to... um, eradicate mosquitoes mm-hmm. one because I think that's impossible yes and, and two yes it, it's, there, it's, it's an ecosystem and there's things living off mosquitoes mm-hmm. they actually fill an important niche as well I mean I guess not as important as bees yep. just to name some another insect but um, no I don't think we should do that even though a lot of people would be happy if mosquitoes would be wiped off yeah. from the earth as yeah. a biologist I can't imagine that People really think that they don't play an important role because there's geckos eating eating mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe there's enough other insects that they can, um, you know, that would fill that gap. Mm-hmm. But in general, I mean, I think we as a human species have had a bad track record of trying to eradicate some uh, species from the earth, right? And that it actually would affect uh, other things. So. But what I find interesting in the case of mosquitoes, so this doesn't help with the nuisance problem of mosquitoes, um, but is that for malaria control, we don't need to kill all the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is, you, if you've got malaria and a mosquito bites you, then the parasite is taken up yep. in the mosquito, and then it takes about two weeks to develop and to become infectious again. So really, all you need to do is to kill the infectious mosquitoes, which are the oldest mosquitoes. So they live about, well, two to four weeks, depending. So you only need to kill the old mosquitoes, which is a very interesting um, 
concept that Andrew Reid's been working on a bit as well. So it's um, actually, it would be a quote-unquote evolution-proof uh, resistance management strategy because what you would do if you would kill only the old mosquitoes is that there wouldn't be as much selection pressure for being resistant because um, if you're resistant as an old mosquito you've already laid your eggs yep. so you've already produced uh, your babies mm -hmm. but the susceptible ones have as well so it's actually a lot less resistance um, okay. evolution of resistance against that strategy <clears throat> so and they're and they're working a little bit on it now as well but um it's basically much easier also to kill all the mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. And the idea is also, the, the answer is in the dose. If you just give a lower dose, a dose that does kill old mosquitoes but doesn't kill young mosquitoes, you're yeah. going to have a similar effect. Yeah. The problem with this is the social science aspect of it because, one, people don't like mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. so, and they don't want to... People coming into their house, spraying the walls, for instance, sure. and then afterwards they still have as many mosquitoes because they don't see that they're only killing the older mm -hmm. ones. So, and then they think this isn't working. What are you doing? Yep. So it needs to be. If this would ever be employed, it would have to be something that's combined with you know, a lot of social intervention and talking with people. So there was a story a while back. I think they've been talking about this for many years in Florida specifically of introducing genetically modified sterile mosquito which would then breed with the others and then you'd end up with sterile colonies of these things yeah and of course that brings in the double whammy of gmos at which point everybody's like no no we don't want this yeah. so if there was a way i think to just kill the older mosquitoes i i would hope that you could convince people that transmitting disease is the bigger problem and you know, just being bitten to death while you're sitting at your favorite bar is yeah. a minor concern, yeah. relatively. Yeah, exactly. Well, at the moment now, that research is sort of stopped because of techni technical issues. Mm -hmm. How can you kill only the old ones and do it in a reliable way? Yeah. And in that sense, people much rather believe in a insecticide that we know we put on something and we test it with mosquitoes. All of them drop dead, and that's what you mm -hmm. want. So. While I think it's a very clever idea, I don't think it's ever going to be used in the near future, mm -hmm. uh, practically. Okay. That's my hunch. The um, genetically modified mosquitoes is a really interesting idea, I think. So there's, I think there's several ways of, and I'm not really into that literature too much, but there's several ways how they plan to do it. And one is a sterile male technique, which I don't think is something that's really going to be working in, on the grand scale of, of trying to control malaria in sub-Saharan Africa because what you do is in a area you release lots of sterile males mm -hmm. and then they they breed with the with the females and then nothing nothing happens basically you don't get any reproduction yep um, but that gene doesn't actually transmit through the population so you need to do this continuously so you need to do it in every single place and these mosquitoes don't fly far mm -hmm. so say a mosquito flies one kilometer yep. that means that you have to do in every kilometer you almost have to release millions billions of these mosquitoes so i don't think it's a scalable solution but there's also ideas of having um, something based on wolbachia which is a, a i think it's a bacteria mm -hmm. um, that basically travels through a mosquito population makes up sterile and that would be something that I think would work because it would actually spread uh -huh. so you don't need to do it in every single location yep. or some, yeah, GMO so genetically modified mosquitoes that might work as well so they're actually a gene that would spread through so which is difficult because you need to have make 
a mosquito that's not able to transmit malaria, yep. but that's fitter than all the other ones, so it would actually replace the population. Yep. And then, of course, there's lots of people that are worried about putting something like yep. that out in the field. So. Yep. so I think we're very far away from that solution. But I think it's very good to think about all these things. The aim now is to eradicate malaria. Mm-hmm. The drugs aren't perfect, the insecticides aren't perfect, both because of resistance. Yep. The vaccine that we have, there is a vaccine that's um, going through different phases and it's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it does something. So I think if we have lots of things, if we yep. combine them all, then maybe it's going to be successful. Which I suspect is true of pretty much any medical condition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's some, there some evolution proof. Um, Combinations of organisms and drugs that they haven't evolved resistance. Um, same with vaccines. There's there's lots of good stories of vaccines that um, basically stop transmission and eradicated a, a disease. So it's possible. We just don't really know what makes one thing work and doesn't work in, in other situations. David here is asking whether you think there will be a cure for malaria. So, for example, with cancer, for instance, everybody is still looking for the magic bullet. Do you think there is an outright cure for malaria? So it's an interesting question. Um, I think one of the main differences when we compare cancer with malaria, in this case, is that you can never get rid of the source cancer. This is true. <laughs> and um, because there are always going to be new new tumors in every single person, it starts again. Uh, whereas with malaria, the, the aim, it's not the cure, because we can cure malaria. It's not a problem. We can cure from a single person if we have the drugs, and we do. Um, we can cure malaria. The problem is we need to stop transmission of malaria. So the question is really, can we eradicate malaria? And again, this is something that Bill Gates has thrown lots of money at, and he still is. And um, there's two groups of people, the people that think that we can eradicate malaria, and there's the people that think we can't. Um, And now your question is going to be, in what group are you? (laughs) (laughs) I used to think that we can't eradicate malaria. Even with lots of money, it just seems to be impossible. Now I'm thinking more that maybe we can, but I don't think it's per se a matter of money mm-hmm. into research, but I think in the end um, it's just development. Mm-hmm. It's development of sub-Saharan Africa, and we can sort of see it's actually going down a lot already. Yep. And with development, having better access to hospitals, better diagnosis, I think we, we get a long way. And mm-hmm. then we get into a stage where eradication actually is... An option. Um, we have very good drugs at the moment. That um, there's some sign of resistance um, in, in in Southeast Asia, uh, but not yet in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there's no reason why uh, to think that it's not going to happen. But um, yeah, I think we can uh, eradicate malaria, but not on the time scales that um, people would like. So Bill Gates wants to see it in his lifetime, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure if he's gonna see it but I think let's say let's take it broad in a hundred years yeah then maybe we get it down low enough that it's not a a global problem anymore yeah I guess what we don't consider sometimes is just the mere social aspect of the conditions within incredibly poor countries and so you know all the all the right things can be there all the right tools can be there and there's just no way to implement it for people who are out in the middle of nowhere living in tents. Right. I think it, part of it is just a developmental disease. 
And you could see it in those areas where the Ebola outbreak happens mm-hmm. and malaria just skyrocketed because the whole uh, public health system fell apart and then that immediately goes back to malaria and malaria went up as well. So there's a really direct link to, to public health. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful. So this is something I knew nothing about and David's just explained that it used to be that malaria was endemic even in countries like Italy, which obviously we don't think of as being third world and that this was as recently as, what, 100 years ago? So what changed there? So it's actually less than 100 years ago. It's only many countries in Europe have been declared free of malaria only in the 70s. Oh, wow. So even the Netherlands, where I'm from, there was malaria. It's a different type. So there's there's five species of malaria, and mm-hmm. it, this was Vivex okay. malaria, whereas in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's mostly for Cyprum. So it was a big problem in, uh, in Europe, also in the U.S., so U.S. and the U.S. still has some malaria in uh, southern um, southern regions. What happened was there was a really big uh, malaria eradication program after the Second World War in the whole of Europe. And what they used was um, DDT, insecticides, and chloroquine, a drug, and it worked perfectly. It was very successful. Uh, they targeted the vector, the mosquitoes, and they targeted uh, the parasite. And this coincided with economic growth in mm-hmm. the whole of Europe. So that in the end, yeah, they got rid of malaria. So Italy and Spain, well, actually the whole of Europe, I think, uh, still has the vector. Mm-hmm. Malaria can still be transmitted. And sometimes you st- still see around airports local transmission of malaria because people come back from endemic areas. And mm-hmm. then uh, since the vectors are still around, yeah. it can be transmitted. But it's picked up very quickly by the health system. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's not really any transmission anymore. I hear this question sometimes, do we, because of climate change, have to worry about it actually coming uh, back yeah. to Spain or to, to Italy? And, um, and I don't think that's a problem because we already have the vectors. We already have the parasites coming in sometimes. The mm-hmm. parasites can, can survive here. The vectors have the perfect climate. It's just with the health system, yeah. it's, it's going to be eradicated before it actually takes off to endemic proportions. Mm-hmm. So David's rather controversial question is that um, Joe Biden and uh, President Obama have just stated that they're they're going to start introducing huge amounts of funding to the NIH to try and finally cure cancer. Um, I think most people realistically realize that this is not going to be as simple as that and that there is already a lot of money going to cancer research and it's not that scientists have just been resting on their laurels and that's not the reason it hasn't been cured. So do you think that this money might better be redirected to something like malaria, which would predominantly help people in poor countries, but would effectively eradicate the disease probably much sooner than we can cure cancer? Right. (laughs) It's a long question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, not being a US citizen... I can take the liberty to decide about what I think should happen to U.S. citizens' taxpayers' money, I guess. Um, I find it a difficult question because living in a Western world, cancer is a disease that affects people around you. It affects your friends, it affects your family, so Mm -hmm. naturally you feel very much inclined that you want to find a cure to this. So on one hand I would say, well, if, if it would actually solve the cancer problem, 
I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. The worry is what you already say. There is already a lot of money going to it. So is it actually a problem that's solved by throwing money at it? Or is it just a matter of time that... I'm sure there will become better better detection methods and better cures. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure that the, it would be money well spent to actually... That it's being realistic to, to, to find a cure to cancer. But then the second part of the question is, should that then go to malaria research? And I find this a difficult question too there's quite a lot of money going into malaria research at the moment especially because of Bill Gates so Mm -hmm. he's really put it on the agenda my worry about this is that for um, African countries and I'm speaking about Africa because I don't know a lot about what the situation is like in Southeast Asia or South America for that matter is that it's not necessarily good that there's all this money coming from the outside because they sort of take it as a given. In the end, especially when we're talking about uh, eradication of a disease, we need to have commitment of of each country Mm -hmm. itself and they need to invest money into actually eradicating a disease because the problem what you have with disease eradication is that initially there's funders like Gates for instance mm-hmm. he puts money into it but you need to invest money into it to the end yeah. you, you can't start a process because what happens if you eradicate the disease but don't go to the end is you're going to bring it down to very low levels nobody has immunity against the disease anymore and then it suddenly sparks up and it's worse than the situation was mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. and I think this is where the economy of the country itself needs to be, come in and they actually need to be committed to do the same thing. There's an organisation called Trend in Africa, and um, a friend of ours, Sarah Hoey, who's part of Point of Science in the UK, uh, is involved in this effort to help the scientists themselves in those African countries uh, kind of develop their labs. And um, yeah. that would, it sounds to me like that would be another great way to do it because yeah. they already have what you might call boots on the ground over there. They have a better feeling for their local communities yeah. and their cultures and so on. And so it sounds like efforts like that might be better. Yes, and actually, and that's what I mean. So, I mean, there's, there's still plenty of, of um, money needed mm-hmm. in malaria research. I don't want to sound like, no, there's, there's already plenty. Yeah, no, yeah. there is. But I think it, we need to think about how to allocate that. And I think, yeah, it's just capacity building in the countries themselves. I think that's where we need to invest in more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, build up laboratories and make sure that there's actually really good people and they start to lead these projects well that was really interesting and certainly gives you a different perspective on how to kind of tackle certain diseases thank you again for You're joining us welcome. this evening and salut yeah cheers <laughs> all the things it tries to say all the wars it tries to Speaking person moving to Barcelona, you enter lots of communication problems. And um, Barcelona has the additional disadvantage of it being a Catalan spoken country. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to learn Spanish, not per se Catalan. And um, so that was sometimes difficult to actually uh, understand people. So I've got two little kids, and they're in school, and there's lots of information from the school via email. 
So what I do when an email like that comes in is I press Google Translate and uh -huh. it translate the story <laughs> for me. So this was a couple of months that we were living here and um, there was a celebration called uh, the Castañeda. Mm -hmm. This is the end of October and, um, and it had a... Um, it had instructions for parents that the kids should be dressed up. Yep. So, and it said, and I just, I don't know what the original wording was, but the Google translated uh, wording was that all the girls needed to be dressed up as a castanera. Uh -huh. And Google Translate said castanera, that's um, a chestnut. And the boys as a bolataire. And that's a mushroom. So it's like a chestnut and a mushroom. Interesting, but, you know, <laughs> different cultures, different things. So here I was thinking about, you know, how to do this. I could think of a boy having some kind of mushroom head yep. on it. But I was like, how do, how do other parents do this chestnut? Like, how do you dress up a girl as a chestnut? And um, <laughs> so I bumped into the English teacher a couple of days before this event. So I asked her, like, so how do other parents do this chestnut? How do they, how do they, they dress up? And she looks at me. And it's about quiet for 30 seconds, and then she started laughing. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. So apparently, a castanera, which was mm -hmm. translated as a chestnut, is the lady that made that uh, roasts the chestnuts. Uh -huh. So the girls needed to be dressed up as a castanera, so this lady, and the boys as a bolataire, which is not a mushroom, but it's the, the person that picks the mushroom in the forest floor. So there you go. That was a close call. I want to stay so far from been listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in